Hello and welcome to the Around the Nation podcast for the week of Monday, October 3rd. I'm Pat Coleman. And I'm Keith McMillan. And we're running down the uh, week that was in week five of the 2011 Division Three football season, uh, a week which uh, was much anticipated uh, for just a, a great slate of games and a, a lot of them uh, you know, came through and then some of them didn't. Uh, for example... Let's talk about uh, St. Thomas-St. John's, which ends up with uh, St. Thomas defeating the Johnnies 63-7, a day which may have been more notable for the atmosphere than for the game played on the field. And here's what uh, St. Thomas quarterback Dakota Tracy had to say about that. Yeah, the Tommy Johnny atmosphere is always great. And, um, you know, it really plays a part in this game. You know, we come out here and we just want to focus on the 140 guys we got on our sideline. Um, but when you got 10,000 around you, it, it, it adds to the atmosphere. <laughs> Keith, a game in which, uh, you know, first of all, St. Thomas for the the first time brings out the uh, the, the portable slash temporary bleachers, big stand of fans in the end zone, very similar to what happens at St. John's, and, and in that first quarter in which St. Thomas goes out to a huge lead, uh, they are uh, they're driving into those fans. Uh, St. John's was trying to work its way out of that end zone. Never got a first down the entire first quarter. Had uh, negative yardage for the first quarter, in fact. Three short punts, three quick scores. But what I wanted to ask you about, Keith, was the uh, you know, Dakota Tracy talked about trying to focus on what's going on on the sidelines and instead you know, just being a little bit distracted by what's going on uh, and, and the, uh, the, the just the mass of people around them. And I know you've played uh, in a pretty big rivalry yourself, and I wanted to hear your take on that. Yeah, and and that's pretty rare in uh, in Division Three. Not just the the atmosphere, but the but the fact you actually get distracted by what's going on around you rather than what's on the field. I think it's pretty natural for a player to to focus on what's in the game. You know, if your head's in the game, if you're paying attention to your calls and all your pre snap reads and everything that's going on uh, on the field, you very rarely have time to think about or even hear you know what people are yelling at you or to you or yelling about during the game. But when you get off. Uh, and you come off on the sideline. Sometimes you do stop and take it all in, and and it sounds like uh, St. Thomas was able to match that that St. John's atmosphere. You know, we we both know that the Collegeville is one of the great atmospheres in uh, in Division Three, if not all of college football. And uh, to see St. John's, to see the rivalry, I guess, you know, rise back up to that point where where it's a great atmosphere, no matter where it is, is kind of neat. The problem, you know, on Saturday was the the game didn't live up to it. No, it was. Uh... It was it was pretty quick strike, 45-yard, 47-yard, 50-yard scoring drives of the first three scores in the first quarter for St. Thomas as they jumped out to a 21-0 lead. Um, you know, next time around, St. John's couldn't even get the punt off. Punt was blocked and returned 12 yards for a score. Uh, and then a 19-yard a drive, a 45-yard drive, and, and only finally did uh, St. Thomas actually start on its own half of the field scoring on a... Uh, the uh, Colin Tobin three-yard run to end a 55-yard drive at the end of the first half. Uh, just kind of a uh, uh, a mix of everything working right. Defense, because St. John's could do almost nothing on offense. Uh, you know, Offense was certainly clicking for St. Thomas. And they had plenty of short fields to work with, and uh, special teams worked as well. Uh, they had great kickoff coverage because uh, St. John's started uh, their, their first three drives inside the 20. Uh, they had uh, special team success with the block punt. Uh, and they always had short fields to work with, and and kind of a kind of an instance where you, I got the question a couple times yesterday: Is St. Thomas that good, or is St. John's that bad? And actually, to be honest with you, right now the answer seems to be both. And that's surprising. You know, we've never seen a, a point in this in this this deep into a season where St. John's has had uh, a losing record. 
And, you know, they turn around and they have to host Bethel next week. So it may get worse. You know, Bethel's coming off a loss, a surprising loss on Saturday. And uh, obviously needs to uh, to win to, to you know, stay in the hunt. The other, a couple other real surprising things about this, you know, I, I mean, I feel, I feel like on Saturday, one of the major statements, you know, St. Thomas was one of the teams that made a major statement nationally. And, you know, some of their early results were a little lackluster. And then you saw the, saw them beat up on, uh, on Olaf pretty good. You saw them, um, you know, beat up this week on, on St. John's and you, and, and feel like the Tommies are kind of starting to hit their stride, but you have to wonder with that 63, seven score, uh, you know, were they, were they making up for all those years of frustration? And remember there was a big stretch there where, uh, where they didn't, you know, St. Thomas couldn't beat St. John's. They couldn't compete with them. And then it, it, over a few years, you, you know, recently it got to be where they would compete with them, but, but they one way or another would, would lose the game agonizingly. And uh, now they finally found a way to, to, you know, beat them um, last year. And then this, this time they just ran all over them. It's the first home field victory since 92. And uh, it, it, it was nice to do it in front of 10,000 fans. I think if, if you're from the Tommy side of things. Well, you mentioned frustration and I wasn't necessarily going to go back into my, uh, uh, my interview files from this past weekend, but let's hear what Glenn Caruso had to say about whether it was uh, taking out frustration. No question it was a great blowout win. Frustration, no. I mean, we focus on how well we can play within our means, and we did that today in a very high-anxiety game where there's a lot of emotion on the line. Our kids balance that line with confidence and confidence, and they're very productive today. So definitely an impact win at home for St. Thomas. Uh, an impact win at home in, in another big atmosphere, I would say, for Cal Lutheran as well. Uh, and they had to come back to do it. Uh, first um, first game in their new stadium, first home night game on campus for Cal Lutheran, and it ended up a 28-24 win. And, it, and I would say it's an early leg up in the Skyhawk race, but I don't think we really expected anybody else to contend necessarily either. No, I mean, this is one of the ones we wrote about last week in uh... – and around the nation, th you know, saying that basically it's it's the de facto title game. But I, I talked to Ben McEnroe last week about this, and he said, you know, remember there were there was a few year, years ago where there was a similar situation, and they uh, Redlands and Cal Lutheran played late in the season, and I believe Redlands won that game, and it was looking like it was going to be a three way tie situation, and then uh, Occidental, you know, inexplicably lost to Whittier in the very last game of the very last week of the season. They lost sixty seven sixty one. I believe it was or something like that. Yeah, and it, it would end up being a crazy game. You know, Oxy was down three touchdowns and, and, uh, but anyway, it, it threw what you expected or what we expected uh, all out of whack. And, and that's sort of, I guess the point you're trying to make Pat is that even when you don't think teams are content are going to contend, or you think you have the race all figured out, you know, there, there's always any, any week, any possibility, one thing, uh, one upset could throw everything off. And so, uh, part of what I was writing about last week was, the team that loses this game on Saturday, you know, Redlands being the team um, that has the early season win under its belt too. They have that, that win against North central where they can, uh, if they finish with one loss, that's a pretty good case for, uh, for getting in as an at-large team. Uh, Cal Luther needed this win because they've already lost early in the season, lost to Linfield. And uh, now they're both in good shape to make the playoffs and Redlands sort of has to, uh, you know, they're waiting for Cal Luther to slip up, but, it, but if it, if it's unlikely, then I, you know, I guess I guess Cal Lutheran is in the driver's seat uh, after that big comeback. Yeah, Redlands is is going to make probably assuming they finish out eight and one, obviously. Um, but they would make the the best case for a Skyac at large bid. I, I think that that we've seen in uh, the the years that they've been uh, eligible for the playoffs, or that we've had the the twenty eight then thirty two team playoff system. I look at this game, Keith, and I uh, that fourth quarter 
looks very similar to the uh, to the St. Olaf Bethel fourth quarter. It's it's three touchdowns at the end to win the game, but these are long drives too. It's a it's an eleven play seventy two yard drive, nine plays seventy yards, ten plays ninety eight. There's no one big fluke play here that uh, that that kind of resparks things. It's just a very determined uh, third quarter, fourth quarter. Absolutely. Uh, Pat, it was a 24-0 game at the half. Uh, obviously, that, that crowd at the brand-new stadium was pretty disappointed in that. And then Cal Lutheran, you know, you, you, you mentioned the three long drives in the fourth quarter. Their third quarter drive was also a 10-play drive. So they went in at halftime and made those adjustments. And then they, they, the great thing about it was they went to their best players. You know, um, Daniel Mosier finished off the first drive with a touchdown run. The two of the fourth quarter touchdown passes went to Eric Rogers, their star receiver, and they capped the last drive uh, with the Jake Lawton Slayer one-yard touchdown run with 16 seconds left. And uh, the, in that game story on D3Football.com, Pat, you um, uh, there there's a quote from Ben McEnroe who who says they're kind of playing for the field goal on the last drive. They're trailing 24-21 at that point. Uh, they they scored two touchdowns early in the fourth quarter, and they feel like you know they. Just want to get the field goal, tie it, and then play overtime in front of their home crowd. And they ended up being able to, to, to stick the touchdown in and send the crowd home happy. I think pretty much any time you start from your own two-yard line, you have to be <laughs> pretty happy to be even thinking about a field goal, let alone having the opportunity to, uh, to win it with a touchdown at that point. Yeah, I mean, that that's you know epic drive stuff that, that stories are made of. Those guys will talk about this drive for years and years to come, especially... Uh, if they are able to finish out the you know the next six games here and uh, you know win the conference and go into the playoffs, I mean this is the big game on the Kingsman schedule. It's the big game on the Bulldogs schedule. Even though they each opened up with a with a power team, uh, you know the, a top twenty five type of team, really top ten team, they each opened up with, um, and they performed well enough to to raise the profile of the Skyac. I think nationally, uh, this is still the big game for them because that conference, as long as as D three is doing the automatic bids. You know, you gotta you gotta win those conference games, and and it's the opener for these two. But it was the big one for them, and uh, and it it uh, it went Cal Lutheran's way. I know there was there was a game maybe a couple years ago where Redlands lost a, a kind of a similar game. Uh, Occidental was the power at that time, and then they they you know had to regroup, and they're in the same situation now where they they played well for a half, and then they played kind of poorly in the second half, and now they got to regroup and try to hang on and get and be a one-loss team at the end of the season and, and hope that uh, they get in, in uh, as an at-large team. Well, and, and just to, to reference even back to last year, obviously uh, losing to Cal Lutheran uh, in a kind of a crushing way at the end of the game again for a second year in a row. Yeah, there was a block kick last year and uh, ended up being a 24-22 game and Redlands finished 8-1, and and last year there just wasn't enough room. There was there were nine at-large teams, one nine one-loss at-large teams, and and there was also you know the last projection uh, made a pretty good case for for Wabash being a two-loss team and getting in. So there there was at least maybe ten teams on the board for only six spots. Redlands was one of them at eight and one. So you know eight eight and one doesn't guarantee anything. Finishing with one loss doesn't guarantee anything. But at the same time, you, from the Redlands perspective. They, they, they felt like they are in a pretty good situation, I'm sure, at halftime, and their season was going just how they wanted it to go. Um, you know, they, they lost another tough one, they, and they got to stay with it here and, uh, and try to get into the playoffs. Yep, the difference, of course, uh, last year, the uh, first non-conference game against East Texas Baptists, ETBU ends up 5-5 five and five last year. Uh, this year, <clears throat> the first game is against North Central. North Central is a 
barring a collapse, going to be a, a win against a regionally ranked opponent. May well be win, a win against a team that ends up 9-1, and one, so it'll look better on the strength of schedule in Redlands if they finish 8-1. and one, I'll say that for the second time. Uh, we'll have a better uh, playoff resume this year than they did at this time last year. Let's stick on the West Coast in another impact game uh, a little bit earlier in the evening. And uh, Linfield uh, taking a lead against Willamette and then having to hold on a little bit as uh, Willamette tries to put uh, things together in the uh, in the fourth quarter. And, and that's another game where, you know, a team got out to, to a big lead and then, you know, we saw it get close there at the end. Willamette uh, trailed 17-0 uh, in the third quarter and finally put together a drive. And you talk about a long drive, Pat. We talked about the 98-yard drive. Willamette had a 100-yard drive. Uh, yeah, I didn't even think that was quarter. mathematically possible. Right, I don't think it is either, but that's, yeah. that's what it says on the box score. Three plays, and they uh, finished it with a 20-yard run. They were able to cut it uh, to 17-10. Uh, with about eight minutes to go, and then uh, Linfield uh, took the ball down and, and and hung on to win that game. Willamette now, you know, for for as tough as their schedule was opening up to drop to one and three, you know, is is a pretty tough break for them, given that they've been competitive now with uh, with with a couple of pretty great teams. But Linfield obviously uh, needed this one. Yeah, that's actually an eighty-yard drive. But uh, the uh, the thing that's key about that is. Uh, Linfield is driving for the score. Uh, they have a second and goal on the three. Uh, Josh Hill uh, gains a yard and then uh, uh, he has the ball knocked loose. It's recovered in the end zone by Willamette, and then it's just three plays later. You know, you, we all think of Willamette as the, you know, the running team because that's, yeah, you know, it's what they do basically. But you know, when you <laughs> when you you can still cover 80 yards in three plays by running the ball. It's just, uh, you know. <laughs> It's a it's a little more uh, spectacular, I guess, when you do it that way. Twenty five, thirty five, twenty yards, and then they're in the end zone. Yeah, and 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 you know that fly offense is is built for um, you know big plays, but at the same time, you nobody's gotten a better read on it, had more looks at it over the course of the years than Linfield has. So if somebody knows how to play it, you know, you think it would be them, and they they had bottled it up, you know, for for almost all the way to the end of the third quarter. And then all of a sudden that turnover quick drive and, and momentum in these games switches so quickly. And, and we saw it happen on, uh, on Saturday in that game where it was 17, zero looked like Linfield was, was, uh, you know, kind of systematically dominating that game. And then before you knew it, it was 17, 10 and, and Linfield had to hang on and kick that last field goal to win 2010. But it's, it's also a pretty satisfying win. I imagine for Linfield to, to do it in that manner. I would think so too, Keith. I think one of the keys is, uh, you know, after uh, Mitch Rowan kicks the forty-yard field goal to make it a uh, to, to make it a, a, a one-score game, Linfield comes out and they just they control the clock. They have a, a real methodical thirteen-play drive. Uh, they get stalled at the seven, but then they attack uh, on a twenty-four-yard field goal to make it the ten-point game, and, and will it from there. Kind of, uh, you know, is out of sorts are not able to to do much with it at that point so forced to go to the air down by 10 with three minutes to go etc but you know for for linfield here's the other thing about um about linfield keith and a couple of other teams here early on in the season um always i always just have this little bit of nagging down the back of my head about the teams that have gotten to week four and have only played two games and often that is uh, teams that don't start until week two, and then they have a bye in week three. So Linfield, you know, before today or before Saturday, had played. Uh, they played Cal Lutheran, which was great, and then they played Laverne, which is you know really not going to show anything. It had been quite a while since they they'd had a test, and they hadn't played. They just hadn't taken too many snaps this season. 
Yeah, and, and it's really tough, you know, Pat, when we're we're trying to evaluate teams that have played five games and they have, you know, established sort of a measure of consistency over the course of five games, maybe by then played one or two tough teams. And then you have Linfield, who's just now playing its third game. Um, it, it is it was tough to judge them. And, and a lot of a lot of the voters have Linfield, around, you know, in or around the top five. And it's really just based on, you know, reputation where they started in the preseason and then that win over Cal Lutheran and to, to add to, to for them to uh, reinforce that win with another a win at Willamette too, you know, it, it, probably against maybe possibly their toughest conference opponent, certainly, you know, local rivalry uh, there in Oregon. And that's that's a really good win for their resume because Linfield now will get into the meat of the uh, NWC schedule, may not play a, a tougher game all season, although Pacific Lutheran has looked pretty good to start. Um so the you know Linfield needs needs that win, and that's another team kind of goes along with the theme of what we wrote, what I wrote about last week, where you have teams who um, play that big game early in the schedule, and then they you know whether or not you win it or lose it, you have to you know stay focused and finish out the rest of the schedule. Obviously, you know coaches say uh, take it week to week, and that's a cliche, but then again they say it's cliche for a reason because you really can't focus too far ahead. Talk about a a team that we uh, have had trouble, I guess, evaluating, but for a different reason, not because they hadn't played, but because of who they played. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of Illinois Wesleyan, who uh, you know, shut out Hope, uh, won a fairly close game, 17-9 at Alma, beat Aurora. You know, none of these three teams are world beaters. Um, and then, you know, they uh, have a bye week, and then they face Wheaton at home this uh, this past Saturday and beat them 24-19. Yeah, and, and, you know, they looked great on defense. I mean, they were the number one defense nationally coming into the Wheaton game. Against... Giving up just Against Hope, Alma, and Aurora. Right, right. So you don't know what to, exactly what to make of it. You've only given up nine points, and all those points came in one quarter uh, in, in the Alma game. So then, you know, they, they've played 11 other quarters scoreless. And right, you, you get Wheaton. And for us, from who watching this from afar, you, we want to see that test. We want to see uh, that defense put against a, a, you know, a top 10, top 25 type of team and see how they perform. And they, you know, they gave up 19 points, but they were able to, to hang on in the clutch. And uh, that that's a big deal for Illinois Wesleyan. And, and we saw the, the top 25 when it came out on Sunday reflect that. I, I think it's one of those situations, Keith, where uh, people knew that Illinois Wesleyan Wheaton was coming and, you know, probably were in a position where they might have been wanting to write in Illinois Wesleyan a specific spot on their ballot, you know, maybe already having them 22nd or 21st, but decided to just hold off a week and see what actually happened. And Pat, it goes back to, to your wisdom that you always say about the top 25. It's not, you know, who you lost to or who you have on your schedule coming up. It's who you beat. And now that Illinois Wesleyan has beaten somebody, uh, you know, that has that reputation in, in Wheaton and, uh, you know, had to work a little bit to do it with the 24-19 win, uh, that now now you, you feel more comfortable moving them into to certain spots in the poll. And and I don't know if you want to talk about that now or later, but I, I made a big move. I mean, I, I took Illinois Wesleyan from, you know, not having them in the poll to moving them into, you know, the top 15 because – that's sort of the, the the spot where sometimes I, I feel like the second CCIW team belongs. And um, I just, you know, some people say, how can a team make that, make a jump like that, 10 spots for, with a five-point win? But in my mind, I think they replaced where, where I had Wheaton as the second CCIW team. And they're around the same spot. They didn't go in the exact same spot that I had Wheaton last week. But I have to start thinking about the number two team in the CCIW. And now I feel like that team uh, you know they may be the number one team in the CCIW but the two teams up there are, are North Central and Illinois Wesleyan yeah and I, I think again it's just a situation of uh, this being a team that was already on 
a lot of voters' radar, just not on a lot of ballots. So when when someone when a team like that um, actually does play the signature game and performs, you know, the way uh, a voter would like to see them perform, then it's very easy to make a a big jump for them. Uh, it's you know it, it's maybe uh, more difficult for a team that comes you know really out of nowhere and does something like that. But Illinois Wesleyan is you know again a, a team that's at least been on the radar. They had uh, a few games where they'd done something anyway. So you know even if they didn't belong on a lot of people's top 25 ballots, maybe they were sitting in the 26 or 27 spot, or you know some people uh, maintain watch lists, and it's very easy to just plug someone in. Uh, then we talk about a team that uh, hasn't moved and and may not move for a while at this rate uh, because of what's going on ahead of them. But uh, you know, you look at Mary Harden Baylor, who uh, you know I think in a game kind of the opposite of some of the other ones we've been talking about. It was closer at first, and then Mary Harden Baylor just kind of ran away with it in beating Louisiana College thirty-six to ten on Saturday. Yeah, they they did what they do in that game, and that's wear a team down over the course of a game. Three running backs, Darius Wilson, uh, actually three three rushers, I should say, because Daryl Bailey uh, is quarterback, and then Elijah Hudson uh, each ran for more than 100 yards in that game. And uh, Mary Harden Baylor sort of systematically ground the the Wildcats down, 36 to 10 in that game. But I think maybe the more impressive part of that is not the 36 points or the 300 yard rushers, but the fact fact they limited that Louisiana College offense to 10 points. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think that's certainly part of it. I, I think there was a lot of discussion, you know, over the course of the week as to how uh, Louisiana College would react to the Mary Harden Baylor running game. And I, I think that, you know, although Louisiana College had had some success against ground games so far this season, it, it's a lot different when you go up a team that is so committed to the run as, uh, as the crew is. Yeah, I mean, they, they've obviously been doing it that way for a long time and, and you know, they, they recruit that model. But the thing is, you know, more than any team I've ever really seen play in, in D3, except for maybe Whitewater, they they start out with the game running the ball. And whether things are going well or going poorly, they'll run it, run it, run it some more. And basically having faith in the fact that in the third quarter, in the fourth quarter, when the game is tough, they'll be able to run. They'll wear your team down. And uh, it, it almost always works out for these two teams. And uh, that's why they're, they're two of the top five. For Mary Harden Baylor, you know, it's been kind of a interesting previous three weeks of the season, but uh, this week against, you know, the, the team that we ranked number 19 coming in, they come up, come out with both their highest point total and their lowest point total defensively. Yeah, yeah, the big thing on, on the defense, you know, um, LC completed just 25, 66 passes. Uh, Mary Harden Baylor had three interceptions. And if you go back a few years to those great Mary Harden Baylor teams, you know, they always had it. They had a great couple of great safeties come through there. Uh, they had, you know, great linebacker one year. Um, it, it's, you know, when they've had complete teams, they've been great on defense as well. And I think this is, is this is the statement that, that uh, they needed to make, you know, and, and, it's impressive in the sense that I mean, almost almost as impressive as what St. Thomas or what Linfield did on Saturday because it, it shows that that uh, that that you're they're start around they're starting around in the form now and you start to see a little bit of a complete team and and with Wesley, you know, at losing a game early, you think maybe the South region is is open for Mary Harden Baylor to be a number one seed to to go to the semifinals again. Not to get too far ahead of things, but that that's what we're starting to see that kind of team round out down there in Belton. And it would be really interesting to see what they do bracket-wise, for example, if Louisiana College makes the field and then also either Birmingham Southern or Huntington or, you know, maybe somehow both 
you know, it, we're able to make the field, then it, it actually opens things up so that we don't necessarily have to see a, uh, an American Southwest Conference rematch in the first round of the postseason. Yeah, and not only not only you don't want to necessarily see the ASC rematch, but it's always that Texas sub-bracket. And right now, uh, you do have a, a, a few other Texas teams that are in the mix here in, in Trinity and, and Texas Lutheran. But um, if potentially, you know, only one Texas team gets in the playoffs, then you don't have to have the sub-bracket. And you, and you mentioned that, Pat, all these other teams across the South now off to good starts in Birmingham, Southern Huntington, and, uh, and, and LC um, could see you know, a very interesting bracket, like you said, in the South. I think we're going to talk about uh, more of those teams a little bit later in the podcast, but I wanted to get uh, through the uh, the, the kind of rundown of impact wins. And, and how about uh, the way that Adrian came out and performed on Saturday? Yeah, the, you know, the, the interesting thing about that game was that Adrian, uh, you know, surged to a lead with a couple of short fields, uh, led 20 to zero at the half, which obviously... Um, I didn't. I didn't see that coming, and I don't think a lot of us, you know, national observers saw it coming. You know, I, I had questions about trying, and I didn't want to move up too high in the poll just because I wanted to see them how they did against you know the best teams on their schedule. But um, you know, they 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 really were in a, in a lot of ways. Um, I hate to keep repeating this every year, but they were built for last year. They had so many seniors, but at the same time, when you have a team like that, you know, you recruit off that. You recruit off that success and and try and look so good in the playoffs against in the, in the loss to Whitewater where I feel like they could take that on the road and say, Hey, look, we're competitive with the number one team in the country and, uh, and bring in a group of freshmen. But sometimes you bring in a lot of inexperience. You may have a lot of talent and, and it doesn't always uh, come together. And, and on Saturday against Adrian, you know, there was, there was maybe even if you wanted to make the case that they, they got the lead uh, in, in sort of a, a fluky way. And I don't think fluky is the right word, but they, you know, they built, they built a quick lead to go up 20 to zero. They, they hung on to it. It was consistent. Uh, they ended up winning that game 26 to seven. Trine was never really able to establish itself on offense. And uh, it was a, a, a consistent, convincing win that puts Adrian, I think, on the radar now for the top 25 voters. Whereas, you know, a week or two ago, you weren't, we weren't even thinking about them. I think there are a lot of other teams like that too, Keith. Uh, you know, um, uh, Dubuque, for example. They're, I mean, they're a team that's been on my ballot for a couple of weeks, but I obviously they're not on a, a lot of other ballots. They're in the AFCA top twenty-five, the the coaches poll, um, and that's often uh, an indication of a team that's done pretty well against a not particularly challenging schedule. But in this case, I mean, Dubuque at least has beaten one of the teams that it has to beat in the uh, in the Iowa conference in order to uh, you know to stake a claim to that title. Yeah, and and it really does come down to that uh, in in the, the Iowa Conference. You have to beat you know Central Co. Warburg. Those are the big three. And in the years that Dubuque has has you know made it made it interesting, or a fourth team, wherever that team comes from, makes it interesting. You know that sometimes will beat one of those teams, but you have to beat all all three of them really to to, to win the conference. And uh, Dubuque has the win over Central, and, and the the five and zero is built off really one impressive victory. But at the same at the same time, you know, you've done it five times now. That's half a season. That's enough consistency to where um, if you start to buy into that team a little bit, that, that they need to be on top 25 radars. Maybe not in the top 25, but but definitely the team you got to be thinking about every week when you go to put that ballot in. Yeah, I think the only unimpressive result for Dubuque is the first 30 minutes of the game against Augustana. Uh, the the half of the game in which they did basically nothing, uh, and then uh, they did beat did they bleh, they did beat Augustana eighteen thirteen. Obviously, Augustana is is really really down this year and they're struggling. But you know, since then, I mean, Dubuque's been kind of on a roll. They beat and they 
trounced Anderson. They trounced uh, Crosstown rival Loris. They trounced Central, which is you know the game that uh, that really launches them. And then, you know, I suppose they probably could have beaten Simpson by more than three touchdowns, but it is still 42-21. Well, and the thing that we're learning about Dubuque too is that it's not just a, a one-man show. They have the, the All-American receiver in Mike Zwiefel, and he's um, you know threatening some of the all-time D3 records. And whether or not he breaks them, you know, maybe immaterial if they have a, a complete team around him. Where they, you know, that ends up being a playoff team. I mean, that that's history at Dubuque. Dubuque's been a down program for a, for a while, and then you know, a few years ago, it started to, to to crest a little bit, and then and then flop back. So to to see them be five and zero, oh, that's a bigger deal uh, on their campus than it is on some campuses where you know four and one and five and zero oh starts are, are are par for the course. Yeah, last week it was uh, Demarcus Fleming having a good week as the uh, as the second receiver for Dubuque. Um, on Saturday it was Justin Spaulding getting it done on the ground with uh, 192 yards rushing and three scores. Uh, Zwiefel certainly got his numbers. He had another 13 catches and he is uh, making quick work of that uh, march up and uh, his uh, challenging uh, for the uh, all-time receptions lead. Yeah, but but you know, no team also go, goes five and zero by itself, you know, or or with one unit performing well. You know, you usually you get to you get to five wins, and you're pretty consistently playing well on defense, playing well on special teams, and playing well on offense. And uh, it seems like they're putting it together there. But again, they they have the uh, you know two two of the big three left to play in Iowa, so we'll see how how it works out for them. Also kind of under the radar, at least unbeaten and not in the top 25, is Trinity, Texas. Uh, we talked about them you know, briefly a couple weeks ago when they, uh, I think it was when they beat Texas Lutheran and they continue to, uh, they continue to remain unbeaten. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not sure which uh, Southern Conference team to buy into. You know, yeah. you got uh, Birmingham Southern undefeated 5-0, and you have Trinity 4-0, and and you have Center. And, and, and Center may... I, I was going to say center, maybe has played the best teams out of them, you know, because they have the win over Washington and Lee, but Birmingham Southern has the win over Huntington. And, and, you know, you just don't know which one right now is the one to get excited about. And you got three of them, you know, probably, probably no top 25 voter can vote, uh, can use three spots for, for uh, one conference when you have 27 conferences in division three, but um, they're, they're definitely three teams that, uh, that we're, uh, we're all thinking about. Trinity over the years has been the one that has the name recognition that tends to be a top 25 playoff type of team. But it seems like to me, um, you know, we have to start as voters paying attention to Birmingham Southern and, and to center this year. Yeah, for me, uh, the 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 choice among the three is is uh, Birmingham Southern, uh, because uh, Birmingham Southern also beat Huntington and and Huntington beat Hampton Sydney, which I know is obviously a, a, a an opponent's opponents. It's not a direct correlation. Um, to me, that is, uh, I guess maybe just a hair more impressive than 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 Center beating WNL, but it, it's it's very similar. Uh, and you know, I think that you know once. You know, we get some more data and and figure out where these three teams uh, kind of line up relative to each other. I think the the voters will agree a bit more as uh, which one gets in, and then one of them will make the top twenty five. Yeah, you know the the good news is is when you have three teams from one conference, they're all going to play each other soon. Trinity's wins are at Howard Payne, uh, home against Texas Lutheran, which is four and one, um, at Rhodes, at Millsaps, and three of the wins are really impressive. The Millsaps game. 
Um, they didn't, you know, Trinity was off this past weekend, but the Millsaps game was 10, three, uh, two weekends ago. They have Huntington coming up a non-conference game. Trinity does. Then they, uh, they, at the end of October, they, they go to Birmingham Southern at the beginning of November. Um, I'm sorry, they, they host Birmingham Southern and then they host center at the beginning of November. So they have those two teams maybe setting up for, uh, for a big showdown many years in, in the SCAC, it was a three team conference, but it was DePaul who's now out of the conference, Millsaps, who's clearly having a down year, and Trinity. And now it may be Birmingham Southern Center and Trinity. And Birmingham Southern has a bye coming up this week, and then they host center. And uh, after another bye, they travel to Trinity. I don't want to get out of this podcast without talking about what happened in the uh, uh, the Mountain Union-Ohio Northern game on Saturday. But uh, as long as we're talking about unbeaten slash unranked teams, uh, you know, of course, the team that beat Ohio Northern last week is Muskingum, and they're sitting there still unbeaten. Yeah, and and they they got a little bit of a of a schedule coming up here. I mean, a tough schedule. You know, their their four and zero is uh, is Defiance, Marietta, Ohio Northern, Wilmington. Now, I was you know after the Ohio Northern win, which was really the eye catcher for the Muskies. You know, really eager to see them play again to see if if it was it was just a one time thing or they they were going to. Uh, to, you know, kind of morph into one of the teams that we need to be watching for the top 25. But, you know, going to Wilmington, um, you know, doesn't tell you a whole lot, doesn't, you know, give us an indication of whether they're top 25 quality or not. And then the weather in Ohio uh, on on Saturday, you know, I, I know Muskingum is not really close to Ada where, where uh, Ohio Northern was on Saturday playing in that mud bowl against uh, Mount Union, but the weather in Ohio maybe had a factor on some, on some of those scores. So you really don't know what to, what to make of uh, the game. I'm looking ahead to this uh, Heidelberg game that they have coming up on Saturday. And I think the uh, Heidelbergs look pretty good so far this season at three and one uh, their losses at Baldwin Wallace, but they certainly took, uh, <laughs> took really good care of capital on Saturday, beating them 55 to three. Yeah, you wouldn't see a score like that, uh, you know, a few years ago. And, and Heidelberg, uh, coached by by a Mount Union graduate, Mike Hallett, he's been building that program, and and I that that jumped off the score sheet for me when I was looking at it. Heidelberg, fifty five, Capital three. It wasn't that long ago that Capital was a it was a uh, you know national quarterfinalist type of team, you know, consistent number two in the OAC, and uh, you know they've fallen on on tough times. Man. You know, I, I think Heidelberg is, is making the case and, and Muskingum is making the case now to jump into that number two spot. But before you see who, who the number two is, you want to see how they do uh, against Mount Union. And, and Heidelberg has Muskingum coming up and then they'll play Mount Union the, the following week. So we'll, we'll get a good good uh, taste for how good both of these teams are in the next couple of weeks. You know, Keith, all this talk about uh, unranked unbeatens reminds me that coming up this week, we have the big battle of the unbeatens in the MIAC, except, of course, it's not Bethel against St. John's. It is St. Thomas against Augsburg, and Augsburg remains unbeaten. You know, to try to talk, you know, we talk about sometimes some of these kind of uh, comparative score puzzles. Uh, Augsburg has to come back to beat Hamlin a couple weeks ago. Uh, McAllister shuts Hamlin out. Uh, Augsburg beats St. John's. St. Thomas blows St. John's away, and now we have Augsburg versus St. Thomas this week. Yeah, the the way you wipe the slate clean with all that and, and figure out what kind of sense it makes is just have Augsburg and St. Thomas play, and, and that's what's going to happen on Saturday. We really do need to see uh, Augsburg against a, a legitimate opponent now that, you know, we don't know what to make of St. John's. Um, you know, they're in that 4-0 that four group, but um, you need to see how they're going to perform. And, and you don't necessarily, we don't necessarily need to see a win because we know St. Thomas or we have them ranked, you know, in the top top three right now. But but you you want to see, are they legit or have they just been beating up on teams that they should beat? We can, uh, of course, assuming that we 
pencil in a loss for Augsburg this week, which is you know something we're allowed to do because we're the analysts. Um, the uh, the the schedule looks pretty interesting for them down the stretch. You know, Saint Olaf obviously is a little bit more high profile than they were last week, um, and then they end the season with Bethel at the Metrodome, so a bit of a uh, uh, an equalizer in terms of uh, the venue, and also on a uh, uh, on a Saturday instead of on a Thursday or a Friday, the way the 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 last Augsburg game sometimes is in the regular season. Um, Let's turn our uh, attention to the East Coast for a little bit. Uh, there's a couple teams in the NEFC that um, that meet this standard uh, of unranked uh, but unbeaten, and you know perhaps a team in the NEFC really needs to go 10 or 11 and 0 in order to get into the top 25. But both Worcester State and Endicott are looking, uh, you know, are, are unbeaten so far, and especially Endicott, the way they just trounced Curry 55 to seven. That's uh, not something I would say we're particularly used to seeing lately. No, I mean, you know, as recently as two seasons ago, you would never see Curry lose, much less, uh, much less lose, you know, 55-7. I mean, that's a stunning result. And now you, you got to give Endicott a little bit of credit because they've dismantled Curry. You know, they beat uh, Salve Regina, who I thought was, you know, maybe one of the up-and-comers in that conference. Um, they're, you know, again, like the same point we make with, with, with Dubuque, 5-0, uh, you've now done it consistently and whether against, you know, whether the quality of teams changes, um, you know, ha half a season now that they've been pretty good and, and pretty dominant and they seem to be getting better uh, with that offense. And, and the other surprise on the other end of the conference uh, up in New England is, uh, is Worcester state. You know, they, they gain a little bit of attention uh, this week when you, when you beat Maine Maritime, if you're able to slow down that triple option enough, um, you know, to, to win a game against them. And that's a team that's capable of rushing for 400, 500 yards in a game uh, when they get that option going. Worcester State 39-22 uh, uh, over the weekend. And, and now they're 5-0 and and putting themselves on a, on a little bit of a crash course uh, with Endicott here, obviously half the season left to play. Yeah, and uh, Worcester State earlier in the year, they beat uh, WPI. It was the first time they'd beaten uh, the Worcester Tech since 2002. Uh, you know, and at that point, uh, Worcester State had been through a, a pretty good run. They were uh, they were ten and one in two thousand one. They were nine and two that year, two thousand two, eight and three the year after that. And then they've just kind of wandered around the middle, uh, with the exception of a two and eight and a one and nine the previous couple of years before going five and five last year. Yeah, and and there's a lot of change going on right now in in, in the NEFC. Uh, you know, Curry was the dominant team, and then you saw, you know, we saw Framingham State shoot up last year to, to be, you know, nine and two. Uh, we've seen Maine Maritime emerge over the years. Endicott has been pretty good. Um, you know, Western New England four and one right now. So there's uh, all of a sudden, you know, the teams we thought we knew in that conference. It was always Bridgewater State, uh, Curry. You know, was dominant. Uh, for a while in that conference. Now, all of a sudden, you got you got upheaval, upheaval, but it also makes it interesting to watch, at least from afar, because you you don't know which team is coming out of that conference, which team is headed for the uh, Week 11 NAFC title game. One unbeaten, unranked that we haven't talked about that is barely unranked is is Hobart sitting there as as the uh, the first team in the others receiving votes category, and they're very similar to what I was talking about with Linfield earlier. They came into this week having played just two games in four weeks, and you know not having much of a of a resume at all, a good resume or a bad resume, just two games. This week they yeah. beat St. Lawrence twenty three nothing. And that's an impressive win for them, just in the sense that uh, St. Lawrence was the uh, was the Liberty League champion last season, and and uh, that's usually Hobart's role, you know. So they they had to kind of 
uh, gain their standing back, and, and they did it convincingly uh, in that game, doing doing a 23-0. You go back, you know, the week before, 56-20 against St. John Fisher, and then they didn't have a game for for two weeks before that. They they won their opener at Dickinson. I think what what stands out about them right now is uh, is the defense. It looks like uh, they've been able to slow teams down. And when you look at the schedule coming up here, Union, Merchant Marine, WPI, RPI, Rochester, you know, there's no reason that that Hobart can't go uh, not uh, excuse me eight and zero. Set a nine and zero, right? Uh, because they only have an eight game schedule this season. But there's no reason they they can't go eight and zero and uh, get themselves a pretty nice seed in the East and a home playoff game. I've held on to a couple of unbeaten unranks for the end of this. Uh, moving back to the West Region, uh, one of whom is someone uh, you know, I think that people who are going to be watching the playoffs need to keep an eye on, and one of whom who probably isn't. And uh, even though these teams are probably of uh, somewhat comparable quality, uh, Saint Scholastica unbeaten is a team that people need to watch out for and Lewis and Clark at 4-0 maybe not so much yeah you know it's we always appreciate what Lewis and Clark did remember that that school was almost on the brink of losing this program you know five or six years ago and now they're to the point where we don't really have to keep bringing that up because they're consistently winning 4-0 is impressive for them home win against Claremont Mudscripts and then uh, three road wins Pomona Pitzer McAllister Pacific so you know not uh, any dominant programs in there are even, you know, programs that are consistently, um, you know, 500 level programs, maybe, you know, maybe Claremont Mudscripts, but for them to be 4-0 is impressive, but it's not because of the conference they play in. You're right. It's probably not going to lead anywhere. They got Whitworth, Puget Sound, Pacific Lutheran, Willamette, Linfield is the rest of their schedule. The last three weeks is going to be pretty tough, uh, tough sledding for them. On the other hand, St. Scholastica playing in, in a league that now has a, uh, a automatic bid that 4-0 start may be pointed towards a playoff uh, spot. Yep, they uh, they trounced McMurray. Uh, this is the M-A-C-M-U-R-R-A-Y. If you, if you listen to someone from McMurray say McMurray, they're going to say it about the same way that I just said McMurray. Uh, but <laughs> I, I, that, doesn't very, that doesn't help very much, I'm sure. Uh, McMurray is the one in Illinois, and McMurray, in, in my pronunciation anyway, is the one in Texas. Uh, McMurray. Uh, losing 49 to six is not a surprise. Saint Scholastica should be able to handle a team like that. They're going to be near the bottom of the uh, Upper Midwest Athletic Conference. Um, they go to Northwestern this week. They host Westminster of Missouri the following week, and Westminster's had a, a pretty decent start so far. Um, you know, it's looking like uh, Eureka may be uh, the team that challenges them the uh, for the title, and they play each other the last week of the regular season, and also a long trip for St. Scholastica as they have to go all the way to uh, downstate Illinois for that game as well. But, you know, someone from the UMAC is going to get in. If St. Scholastica runs the table, goes 10-0, and you know, it's someone that, depending on what happens elsewhere, I'm not saying they have a shot at a home game, necessarily, uh, because there are going to be a lot of good teams in the West, but, you know, they would avoid having to go to Whitewater and probably avoid having to go to St. Thomas as well if they go 10-0. and I think that's the big goal for them. Uh, you know, Obviously, they want to win the conference, but going 10-0 and means they might avoid getting shellacked in the first round by a really, really good team. Yeah, and, and a home game for them would be not only special you know, just for, for the UMAC as a conference in terms of respect, but... Uh, you know, to have to go to Duluth, Pat, you're, you're from Minnesota, you know, you know, Duluth is not near the rest of Minnesota, <laughs> the rest of the Minnesota teams, I'll say. I mean, that's a serious trip for pretty much anybody in the West in D3. So uh, for, if they happen to get a home game, that could be a pretty big deal. And, and that's nice for a, for a, a new program, too. 
Yeah, they would have to. Uh, there might be some challenges there. They'd have to negotiate with uh, the the. I don't know if the how the D two bracket might turn out. If Minnesota Duluth, for example, gets a bye, I mean, basically Scholastica plays in UMD Stadium for uh, for most of their games. Um, but if Minnesota Duluth, uh, they're four and one right now. I can't believe I'm looking at D two bracket potential right now, but. Um, if Minnesota Duluth either gets sent on the road or has a first-round bye, then Scholastica has, a, has an availability there. Uh, but, yeah, to play in Duluth, just just first of all, to play in Duluth. Secondly, to play in Duluth on November 19th. Yikes. Yeah, you don't want any part of that. Pat, that's when you know it's time to hit the lightning round and start wrapping the podcast up when we start getting into D2 stuff. <laughs> I'm, I'm still pondering the the uh, the Minnesota Duluth thing, you know, that uh, – Northern Sun Conference is is pretty tough, and everybody plays a a closed schedule this year. So I don't know how that's going to help their strength of schedule, or even how strength of schedule is considered in Division Two. So yeah, we're going to move on to the lightning round. We talked earlier, just for the briefest moment, about Mount Union and Ohio Northern. Um, you know, the uh, highlight uh, reel started going around Sunday night. Uh, the we uh, got a photo from a fan that we included in our um, our uh, top twenty five roundup on Sunday to take a look at what kind of the conditions there were, you know, there's only two non-turf fields left in the OAC. And, uh, you know, from what I was hearing, uh, to be honest with you, a lot of high schools in Ohio, uh, play on turf as well. You're going to be in a situation where, you know, kids just don't remember how to play the game in mud anymore. Well, and, and it does take away some of the, the great memories and the iconic images. Certainly that picture, the, just the, just the still photo, regardless of the highlights, uh, the still photo tells the story better than we could ever explain it here on the podcast. I mean, you just see guys caked in mud and, uh, you know, they're playing in basically a puddle of mud in, in the middle of the field. And, uh, you know, th- there's probably great memories for those guys. But uh, also, it wouldn't have been such a great memory for Mountain Union if they weren't able to hang on and win that game 14-6. Remain ranked number two in the country. But, but um, Pat, you know, over the past 10, 12 years as we've been doing the website, the shift really has gone from uh, a lot of grass fields in D3 to a lot of turf fields. And uh, the, the, the game, right, it, it is probably more of a shock now to play in mud when team, you guys don't, don't even have the experience in it, you know, playing in high school or playing in, in the snow or whatever what the case may be. Um, weather can be a big factor. You mentioned it, Duluth, you know, all across Ohio. Uh, the, the, we're just getting into fall here. It's going to get worse before it gets better, especially on Ohio Northern's field. Wesley had a big game on Saturday. Uh, they went down to Charleston Southern. Charleston Southern is a uh, Division One FCS program with uh, with scholarships. I'm not sure if they have the whole 64 or whatever FCS is getting these days, but uh, they're a scholarship-funded program. Uh, they're not in their first year. They've been, they haven't been playing football for forever, but they've been playing for, uh, I think somewhere between five and seven years. I, I looked this up earlier and then I promptly forgot it because I don't do FCS this time of year. But the thing, of course, coming away with a 33 to 20 win and becoming the second team this year in division three to beat an FCS scholarship program. Well, you know, all the games are big from now on for Wesley. When you lose an early game and then you don't have a conference uh, championship to chase, you don't have a Wesley doesn't have an automatic bid um, to go after. And then they, they don't have, um, you know, but five D3 opponents and you already lost to one of them. They, they, everything is big for them. You know, the win over Charleston Southern may not uh, account for a whole lot in the 
major criteria, the the initial stuff, but it all gets factored in, um, especially now that that they they they're allowing the committee, I think, to factor in some of the things that we used to consider secondary criteria. So every win is big win for Wesley, but it's also a big win for D three as a whole. Whenever uh, one of our teams, even if it's one of our best teams, is able to beat a, a scholarship program. Uh, moving on in the lightning round, we we talked earlier about. Uh, St. Olaf and Bethel, I, I did mention that one of them, well, I kind of alluded to the fact, one of those three scores is a four-play, 95-yard drive with a 82-yard uh, touchdown pass to Jake Smeezing. So maybe that's one play that's a fluke, but what's not a fluke is how St. Olaf was able to pass on Bethel uh, this past week and uh, throwing for 335 yards against the Royals. And, and you know, a whole bunch of those yards came in the fourth quarter, and, then, and that was one of those games where, you know, in the experience of Saturday where you got scores coming in from all over the place and it's a 28-10 game at, at Bethel and then all of a sudden you see the tweet with the upset alert on it and St. Olaf is leading 30-28 to 28 and you know, what what the heck happened there and, and St. Olaf just had really uh, a great fourth quarter and that's going to be a quarter now that thrusts them uh, into the spotlight in the Mayak. Uh, we're going to have to start paying attention to St. Olaf and Augsburg and not as much attention maybe to Bethel and St. John's. Yeah, uh, so St. Olaf is now 4-1. and one. They've already played St. Thomas, and they lost 49-14. Uh, that game was two weeks ago. Uh, St. Thomas just came out and blew the doors off of uh, off of St. Olaf right away. They went up 35-0 and just kind of cruised from there. So what St. Olaf has coming up next, uh, they have Crosstown rival Carlton. Then they are at Augsburg, home to Hamlin at St. John's, and home versus Concordia-Moorhead. I mean, uh, if, you, if you consider Carlton to be um, a game where you know anybody could win because of the intensity of the rivalry, then that means there's really four games out of these remaining five that they uh, could reasonably lose, and Hamlin being, I guess, the exception. They obviously need to, you know, to, to win them all to stay in the mix once they got that St. St. Thomas loss uh, on their schedule too. Yeah, they need to go nine and one to uh, to to go to the playoffs. I don't think the conference automatic qualifier is very likely they would have to hope for St. Thomas to lose twice. And that seems uh, fairly unreasonable, I would say, uh, at this point. Other things that went on on Saturday, Keith? Monmouth beating St. Norbert in the uh, in the Midwest Conference 10 to three. That was a uh, you know a game we, we had our eye on, but uh, the score was a little bit surprising, but maybe the winner not so much. Um, Central beat Co. 38-35, so that the Iowa Conference more confusing than before. Uh, Franklin beat Mount St. Joseph in the Heartland, uh, 35-23. Franklin now four and one. That one loss was was the 45-0 loss to Whitewater, um, but but uh, you know everything else they've done this season looks uh, pretty impressive. And um, you know maybe we give a hat tip to the old Conestoga wagon rivalry. Dickinson beating Franklin and Marshall 31-24. Uh, also, uh, hats off to uh, presentation, winning it the the first, uh, getting the first win in its program's short history. They beat Martin Luther twenty eight to six. Uh, Anna Maria got so close to beating Gallaudet, and then Gallaudet rallied and went on to win forty eight to forty in triple overtime. Uh, Gallaudet doing to Anna Maria what Catholic did to Gallaudet earlier in uh, earlier in the season, and then. You know, I don't know if people are still going to be talking about this play on Monday, but it was the number one play on Sports Center on uh, Saturday night. So um, the the concept of uh, Pacific t picking up this uh, blocked extra point, uh, you know, two or three seconds after the play ended, and someone being heads up and running it all the way back 100 yards for a two point conversion. 
It puts a lot of pressure on us, Pat, as the play of the week voters. Once it's been on ESPN and been their number one play, uh, it's going to be it's got to be something else amazing, right, for for it to beat us, to beat uh, our play uh, or to not be our play on uh, on Tuesday when we uh, decide on that. Yeah, I have to admit, usually, Keith, they, they go in the opposite direction. Uh, the, we have our plays out on uh, on Monday morning. No, <laughs> what is that? Tuesday morning, and sometimes ESPN picks up a D three play midweek. But it's kind of the uh, the the way the internet is going and social media things can and uh, things can get transmitted that quickly. It, when was the last time? You know, it it's not been that long that you could even conceive of ESPN having a D three play on on Saturday night from a Saturday night game, a West Coast well, game, nonetheless. Yeah, and we were amazed. You know, three or four years ago, when it was that the play for the ages from Trinity and Millsaps ending that game, and it, it took a little bit of, uh, a little while for that uh, to build up some steam. But this, yeah, you're right. It's just a, a game that a game that's not even on our radar on a huge Saturday in Division Three. Uh, you know, specific uh, probably a good moment for them, and you know, the second year of that program, and uh, certainly one of those unique plays where you you watch football and you go, I've never seen anything like that. May never see anything like that again. Coming up next week, we've got week six. That's uh, officially uh, hump week, as it were, in Division Three. five weeks before it, five weeks after it. No, no, we probably won't brand it that way. All right. Uh, some of the games that we've already talked about uh, coming up this week, uh, we mentioned that uh, uh, Augsburg is hosting St. Thomas. Uh, Mary Harden-Baylor is at Mississippi College. Uh, St. John's hosts Bethel in a game that seemed a lot more interesting, uh, you know, let's say 48 hours ago. Um you know, Wittenberg traveling to Huntington and Keith, you know, first of all, it, just an intriguing game because, you know, it's an in-region game. You never really think of Ohio and Alabama being in the same region, but they are for Division Three purposes. And then Wittenberg has really kind of struggled on the road in the past couple of years as well. Well, I, I think it, it's just, you know, hats off to both of those teams. Obviously, Huntington being independent just needs games. Wittenberg, because they're in the North Coast, they really only get one, maybe two real tough tests every season. So for them to to go down to Huntington, that's a test for them to be able to play on the road, to be able to play with a, a, a high-powered offense. And uh, it, it'll, you know, Wittenberg's right now in a good spot in the top 25. Huntington's looking to get in that top 25. Whoever wins on Saturday, it'll be a, uh, you know, sort of feather in the cap. In the end, Jack, we've got another one of those games that's going to help us figure out uh, this well, it's not a triangle. I guess it's a square at the top. Uh, Montclair State hosting Cortland State. And that'll be a big one. Uh, Dan Pitcher's been been playing pretty well for Cortland State. Montclair State's been getting some, uh, some a pretty good running game going. But neither of those teams, their results have been dominant. So, so you know, it's hard to pick a favorite in this one. Uh, there's just another one of these kind of oddball, off-the-wall uh, off schedule games schedules especially in mid-season uh is trying playing at lagrange it's kind of like the uh slightly longer version of the uh, wittenberg huntington trip we just talked about yeah and and you know just for trying obviously they just want to get back on the uh on the horse there and and uh get over the adrian loss and then lagrange uh not not ready to join not in the in the uh conference yet you know joining um the usa south i believe next season so they're the same same boat as Huntington taking games with uh, anybody who'll play them at this point in the season because most teams are into that conference schedule and uh, a lot of them will actually rearrange maybe an early game just so they can take this game sort of later in the season. Dubuque hosts Wartburg, uh, Springfield versus Salisbury in the uh, Empire A Triple Option Bowl. Yeah, that could be, uh, you know, 
we see these games where you have a thousand or eleven hundred passing yards combined. This could be twelve hundred rushing yards. Maybe not quite that many, but uh, it could also be the fastest game in uh, in D three history. Right, the clock will never stop. We talked. Uh, I think it was with Springfield coach Mike DeLong a couple years ago. The the first year that the timing rules uh, changed in college football. And remember, college football rules change for all levels. So something that was really targeted at making a Division One game go faster for television trickled down in a bad way to Division Three, where games were getting uh, you know completed in like two hours and fifteen minutes. Yeah, and and uh, this one, you know, you, you think maybe fifteen passes in this game. Total, uh, well, obviously you have to see how it goes, but Springfield off to the 3-1 and one start. Salisbury 4-0, both of those teams uh, want to get a leg up in the Empire 8, and uh, and we'll do it, you know, two of the best teams in the country at running the triple option, so it'll be a pretty good one to go to. Uh, St. John Fisher is at Ithaca. Uh, Lebanon Valley plays Albright, and then two games which have been big in the past, maybe not so much this year, uh, but of course the traditional uh, ODAC opener between Bridgewater and Hampton-Sydney, and then in the USA South, always on the same weekend, Shenandoah is at Christopher Newport. That is the uh, Week 5 podcast uh, for Around the Nation here on D3Football.com. Don't forget to stick around. Uh, coming up the rest of the week, D3 reports coming up this afternoon. If you guys are uh, bringing your, uh, your cell phones to games, fire it up and Talk for a minute and a half about your game. Uh, you know, send us a video on Saturday night or on Sunday, and we'll, uh, you know, we'll th- we'll throw it in there. We got some interesting reports from across the country, and we'd like to include yours and your take on what's going on in your world, uh, uh, in your part of Division Three. Uh, we'll have the play of the week on Tuesday, and then around the region columns on Tuesday and Wednesday, and Keith's around the nation column on Thursday.